0: 17 to chapter 5, verse 2 instructions for Christian living. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God.
1: I wonder if you're already tired of the phrase, the new normal. I am a bit. First of all, it doesn't feel very new anymore, does it? Sometimes it's difficult to remember whether we've been in lockdown for just a few months or several decades. However long it's been, it certainly doesn't feel new. Secondly, it's not very normal either. It's so different things that were second nature to us are now just totally off limits. About six weeks ago, Sarah, my wife, went for a walk one evening and she spotted a good friend coming down the street the other way. Obviously, it was the first time they'd seen each other for a while and they were both so pleased that they automatically gave each other a massive hug only to immediately recoil from each other, jump back two metres and then apologise profusely. The new normal isn't very easy to get used to. Well, here in our passage this morning, Paul reminds the Ephesians to live in their new normal. Their new normal hasn't been caused by a global pandemic. We've seen through Ephesians that they were dead in sin, but have been made alive in Christ. Everything has changed for them. They've been brought into this new humanity, the church, made up of all types of different people who have been brought together by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Last week, we saw Paul urging them to live a life worthy of the calling they had received, a life marked by unity. But this morning we'll see that the Ephesians are struggling to get used to their new way of life. The things that were second nature to them, but are off limits in the new normal, are creeping back into their lives. It would be like us, going back to living exactly as we did in February. But it's June. So here, Paul warns them. He's really clear that what he's about to say is massively important. He emphasises it at the beginning of verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. Listen up, Ephesians, he says. What's so important? What's he warning them about? Verse 17. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Or in other words, don't live like you're dead. You must no longer live as an unbeliever. Stop dabbling in your old lives. This is the new normal. Your life must look different. The word live here literally means to walk. It's the same word that came up in chapter 4 verse 1. And it will come back again at the end of this passage in chapter 5 verse 2. Paul is dealing with the Ephesians' way of life. Their daily patterns, their walk. And there must be a marked difference between the walk of a believer and an unbeliever, between their new life and their old life. Paul describes what the old unbelieving way of life looks like by filling in the details of the picture he used back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Back then, he said, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to walk. It's the same word. This is what your life used to look like, Paul says. And now that you're alive, don't go back to living like you're dead. This way of life is marked by futile thinking. Can you see that at the end of verse 17? If you listen to our recent Sunday evening series on Ecclesiastes, then you'll remember at the start the teacher saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Hevel. 38 times through the book, he said, meaningless, vanity, like a breath of wind. That's what Ecclesiastes warned against, living life under the sun, without God in it. Well, the word translated futile here is the Greek equivalent of that term. That's the picture Paul's painting. This is like living life grasping onto nothingness. You'll notice that much of what Paul says is focused on the mind. Not only is their thinking futile, but in verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding and have ignorance in them. And this way of thinking is because of a heart condition, hard heartedness. And that leads to them being separated from the life of God. In verse 19, Paul shows what this way of thinking leads to. Just look at verse 19. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. This vicious cycle has led to a complete callousness towards God. They're totally unaware of and insensitive to his presence. And they have totally given themselves over to a sinful lifestyle. Every kind of sin you can think of, they're full of it. Now, you might be thinking that Paul's description here is harsh. It may be even offensive. But Paul has been clear and upfront about the human condition. He's shown us this before, as we've seen at the start of Ephesians chapter 2. Here, Paul is describing an attitude, a mindset, a way of thinking that is spiritually dead. A lifestyle that is bent in on itself. Not at all about God. Instead, an attitude that is all about me. And there are consequences to that. A separation from the life of God. Death. If you're watching this morning and you're not yet a Christian, thank you so much for joining us. But the Bible holds up a mirror to show us the reality of our situation. It says that because of our sin, our mindset that grasps onto anything and everything except for God, We are separated from him and are spiritually dead, devoid of life. It's impossible for us to get to God. But the amazing news that we've seen through Ephesians is that God doesn't leave us there. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to live the perfect life that we could never live. And to die the death that we deserve. Uh, taking God's right wrath for us on the cross. So that we can move from, from this, uh, being dead in sin, to being alive in Christ. Uh, that has been the good news of the first three chapters of Ephesians. And that is good news for you today. Come. Come and be forgiven for your sin and find life in Christ. For the Ephesian believers Paul was writing to, and for those of us who are Christians, Paul urges us not to live like we're dead. Instead, he says, do live as you've been taught Our translation slightly obscures the personal relationship with Christ that Paul is emphasising here. Uh, Paul's not talking of information about Christ or or things to do with Christ. Uh, More literally, he, he says, if you look at verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way when you heard Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. There was a day the Ephesians met Christ. They had an encounter with the Son of God. They learned him. They heard him. They were taught in him. Through word ministry that we saw last week is vital to the life of the church. They met Christ and are now in a relationship with him. And their relationship with Christ is the context within which Paul teaches for the rest of the passage. As the Ephesians entered their relationship with Christ and they grew in it, they were taught about how to live life in their new normal. And Paul explains that life using an analogy in verses 22 to 24. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. When I first got married, quite a lot of my socks would go missing. Now, they were mostly the ones that had holes in them, so I wasn't too concerned. But one day I couldn't find my favourite t-shirt, a bright blue Oklahoma City Thunder basketball t-shirt, real comfort clothes. I asked Sarah, uh, but she said that I must just not be looking hard enough. But interestingly, she didn't offer any help. I soon realised that charity bags were mysteriously being filled on an almost weekly basis. And then about four years in, I opened my wardrobe one day to find that all I had were chinos, checky shirts and woolly jumpers from Marks and Spencers. My wardrobe had slowly but surely been replaced. I've, I've tried to fight back a little bit since then, but one relatively cool pair of Adidas trainers doesn't make a summer, does it? Do live as you've been taught. Get on some new clothes, Paul says. But put off your old self. See that in verse 22? Get rid of your previous walk, corrupted by its deceitful desires. That's the same idea as the downward spiral that we saw in verse 17 to 19. And instead, get dressed up in your new togs. Ready for your life in the new normal. Put on the new self. Pull on your righteousness and button up your holiness. And do you see what has to happen in between the putting off and the putting on? There in verse 23. They are to be made new in the attitude of their minds. This is in contrast with the futile mindset and thinking in verse 17 to 19. Stop being all about yourself. And instead, because of your relationship with Christ, have a totally new framework for the way in which you view the world. So firstly, don't live like you're dead. Secondly, do live like you've been taught. And thirdly, out of deep love for them, Paul gives the Ephesians... Very explicit instructions for getting dressed. William, my son, should really be getting himself dressed in the morning. He'll be four in October. What he needs is someone like Paul to carefully and patiently outline exactly how to take off and put on his clothes. Instead, what he's got is me An impatient father who who asks him to get ready and then sees him wandering round five minutes later with with only one arm out of his pyjama top and swinging his socks round his ears. and, and, And I just get fed up and decide to do it myself every single day. Paul's not like me, thankfully. Paul wants the Ephesians to grow up to full maturity in Christ so they can get dressed themselves. And so he gives them careful instructions for how to do so. They're struggling with the new normal, still wearing their old clothes. And so in verses 25 to 32, Paul gives them five commands. And each of those five commands follows a pattern. Firstly, he tells them to take something off. Then he tells them to put something on. And finally, he gives them a reason for doing so. Given the context of Ephesians, it's not surprising that Paul talks to the whole church and applies it to church life. So firstly, in verse 25, Paul says, don't lie. Tell the truth because you are one body. Put off lying and put on truth telling. Of course we should tell the truth. We are people of the truth. The truth of Jesus, we've seen that in verse 21. So there should be no place for lying in our lives or in the church. But notice the reason that Paul gives. For we are all members of one body. Our body would be pretty dysfunctional if different parts of it kept lying to each other, wouldn't it? If, if my eyes deceived my feet into thinking that there was no obstacle in front of me, then I'd trip up and fall over. If, if I had a, a glass of water in my hand and my, my brain deceived my lips as to how close it would be, I would end up with water all over me. Our truthfulness as a church marks us out as part of God's new family. Not dysfunctional. If we don't tell the truth, then we won't trust each other. If there are big lies lingering in the background, then our relationships are a sham. If we fail to tell others how we're really doing, then they won't be able to help us. If we always exaggerate the situation, then we're not giving a true picture of reality. If we don't speak the truth in love, then we won't grow into the mature, full body of Christ. We have to be careful with how we wield the truth, but we do have to wield the truth. Our church as a whole depends on our integrity as individuals. Secondly, in verse 26 to 27, Paul says, Don't sin in anger. Do hold short accounts, or the devil will get a foothold. This is a command to be careful with. Paul warns against sinful anger. There is a right anger, one that Christians should have. On this verse, John Stott, who was a pastor in London, said... There is a great need for more Christian anger. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. Because of what's happening around the world and in our own country today, nowhere is this more true than around the issue of racism. Racism is sin, it's depraved, it's wrong, and as Christians we should deplore it, we should hate it. And if there is racism inside the church, it's right to get angry with it and get rid of it. But sadly, most most anger in the church is not righteous anger against racism. Most of our anger in church is defensive, about petty things that have happened against us. And Paul says, take it off. In fact, he says that we should sort it out. Don't let anger lie in relationships. I've been really challenged by that this week. Too often I let my anger grow. Its seed falls in in horribly rich, fertile soil in my heart where I mull over what happened and, and become more and more twisted when I should just sort it out before the sun sets. If we get to the end of the day and we're angry with someone in church we should sort it out before putting on our PJs. We have to. Lingering anger destroys the church because we have an enemy who is looking to grab hold of anything. See that in verse 27? And do not give the devil a foothold. I wonder if you've seen the film Free Solo. It won Best Documentary at the Oscars last year. It's on Disney Plus right now. You can watch it later on if you want. Don't turn it on just yet. Alex Honold climbs mountains. But he climbs mountains without ropes. And without a rope, he tackled and climbed the sheer-faced 3,200-foot rock El Capitan in Yosemite. Imagine his grip on that mountain. Imagine the weight with which he will press into that foothold to ensure he doesn't let go. That's what the devil will do with our anger. He will grip onto it as if his very existence depends on it. And he will try to use it to divide us all. So for the sake of our church, we have to take it off. Hold short accounts of people. Sort it out. Thirdly, in verse 28, Paul says, don't steal. Do work so you can give. others. This is about people who were stealing for a living. They'd been uh, making their lives as thieves in, in Ephesus because at the time there was no welfare state. If you had no job then you had to steal in order to eat. But Paul tells them to put it off and instead work for a living. This is hardly groundbreaking, is it? It's a Ten Commandment basic. If you're stealing, stop it. But look at the reason Paul gives for doing this at the end of verse 28. That they may have something to share with those in need. Working hard produces a benefit in the church community. You can look after your brothers and sisters who otherwise may feel forced to steal themselves. Working hard shouldn't be in order to hold wealth for us. But instead, we should share it with others who are in need. Fourthly, in verse 29 to 30, Paul says, Don't speak wrongly. Do build up so you don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Unwholesome talk should conjure up an image of something that is putrid. Like rancid fish or off fruit. One writer said that this image of rottenness suggests Paul wants the Ephesians to develop a kind of gag reflex against this kind of talk that will repulse them before the words even come up and out of their mouth. Put it off. And look at what they should put on in verse 29. What is helpful for building others up according to their needs That it may benefit those who listen. We should be looking out for people's needs in such a way that we are giving them a bespoke service when it comes to our words. Looking for ways to build them up in the most suitable way for them. The word benefit here is literally the word grace. Our words should be grace to others, amplifying the grace that we have in Christ. Why are we to do this? Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Unwholesome talk in the church causes a reaction in the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is grieved at the horror of the church speaking this way to each other. It's going against the work that he's doing in us individually and collectively. So what are we saying behind our brother's back? Or what are we saying to our sister's face? What are we saying when the mic is on mute? What words do you use when you're upset or lonely? Who are you talking about or to in a way that is grieving the Holy Spirit? Fifthly, Paul says in verse 31 and 32 Don't be horrible, do be kind, because God forgave you. What should we put off? Verse 31 Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. What should we put on? Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other? Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. The list in verse 31 seems to grow from inward emotions to outward actions. This is a catch-all for the old self, corrupted by its deceitful desires. Put it off, Paul says. Instead, we should be new people, all about others. And when things do wrong, and they will go wrong, we forgive. The church should be the place where forgiveness comes most naturally. Because we all stood beneath a debt we could never afford. And have been forgiven every last bit of it. In light of how we've been shown kindness, compassion... And forgiveness. How could we not show that to others? Paul summarises this whole section by saying in chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, be like God. Verses 25 to 32 are sandwiched between Paul saying in verse 24, put on the new self created to be like God. And then chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul says, follow God's example. It's striking. We should mirror, image, replicate God. How could we? How do we even know what God is like? Well, when God came to earth, God in flesh showed us. See that in verse 2? Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be like God who sent his son to walk in the way of love for us. That walk took him to the cross where he died. To forgive us from our sin. And, and he rose again. So that he could be taken from death. To life. So that, so that we can be taken from death in sin. To life in him. And now we can live like him. In God's power. So today. What do you need to take off? And what do you need to put on? In light of what we've just heard from God's word, we're going to confess our sin corporately together now. The words will appear on the screen and I'll wait a moment for you to be able to look at the first section and we'll say them together in a moment. Let's say together, Father God, we know that we are more sinful than we can imagine, but you have loved us more than we could ever dream. All your loving kindness is in your son, our Lord Jesus. We see him with the eyes of faith. We proclaim his saving name as the one who died for us. We plead his blood to pay for our debt of sin. In your mercy, accept his sinlessness for our transgression, his purity for our uncleanness, his truth for our deceit, his meekness for our anger, his generosity for our theft, his words of life for our unwholesome talk, his kindness and compassion for our bitterness and malice. His righteousness for our corruption, His perfect walk for our stumbling steps, His death for our life. To enrich us will not diminish your fullness, but instead will grow us into the full measure of your Son. So please, Father, by your Spirit, help us to put off the old, renew our minds and clothe us anew. We thank you for your great power that is able to do this. We ask this in your mercy and for your glory. Amen. Well, we're going to sing again now. And then Ali Shute is going to pray for us.
2: Oh, great God of highest heaven Occupy my lowly heart Own it all and reign supreme Conquer every rebel power Let no vice or sin remain That resists your holy war You have loved and purchased me Make me yours forevermore I was blinded by my sin Had no ears to hear your voice Did not know your love within Had no taste for heaven's joys Then your spirit came. me Open up your words to me Through the gospel of your Son That's dependent on your grace Keep my heart and guard my soul From the evils that I face